Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Nobody likes banks. But can you imagine a world without them? It's not easy. Their skyscraping offices dominate the horizons of most major cities from New York to Jakarta. Banks sit squarely in the middle of everyday life for billions of people, whether they're buying groceries or buying houses. The lack of access to a bank account can be economically crippling. And yet the possibility of a world without banks is becoming visible. The question is, would a world without banks be a better one? You're listening to Money Talks from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, finance editor at The Economist. And today, we're following the rising tide of digitisation that's reshaping the way money works worldwide. Digital payments and loan providers are filling the gaps left by banks and challenging banks' traditional business models. Tech firms and governments are racing to make widespread digital currencies a reality, with huge and uncertain consequences. So does this brave new digital world still need banks? To get to grips with this vast and complex subject, I'm joined by Alice Forward, our Wall Street correspondent and the author of a special report on the future of banking in this week's Economist. Hi, Rachna. Thanks for having me. To start off, Alice, tell us why we're talking about the future of banking now. So for as long as there has been money, whether that's shells or gold and now banknotes and digital money, there have been institutions willing to provide safe storage for deposits of it. And these institutions, which we call banks, the people that run them have realised that in normal times, not all depositors will come and demand their money back at once. And so they can use some slice of deposits to make loans and earn interest for themselves. This structure is critically important for funding, lending, which sort of helps economies grow through time, but it's also inherently unstable. So the history of money and banking and capitalism is one of economic enrichment pockmarked by the scars of financial crises. And in general, This history also is a sort of time of huge growth and success for banks. You know, total assets of the world's biggest thousand banks now are $128 trillion, which is much larger than annual GDP even, which is $84.5 trillion. But their role is now under threat from new technologies, plus the growth of capital markets and even potentially the public sector. So let's start with technological change in the private sector. We've talked before on Money Talks about the tech revolution that started in retail banking, in particular in Asia. How is this evolving? So there are a slew of tech platforms, as you say, especially in Asia. I'm thinking here of things like Alipay, WePay, uh, Grab in Singapore and Gojek in Indonesia. And they're all amassing more and more users. And their version of provision of financial services starts by being the sort of dominant platform for which people do everyday transactions already. So whether that's e-commerce or ride hailing or messaging. 
And then they have expanded into providing payment services and eventually sort of a whole range of financial services as well. And banks, you know, initially weren't necessarily paying close attention to the growth of ride-hailing platforms or e-commerce firms. But as these platforms have muscled into the provision of payments and financial services, bankers have been watching these developments with increasing interest. Uh, Kahina Van Dyke has worked on all sides of this topic. She's currently the head of digital and data at Standard Chartered, a big international bank based in Singapore. She was also at Ripple, a cryptocurrency company, and has also worked in financial services at Facebook. In the emerging markets, the lack of options fueled that innovation. And the fact that many people did not have traditional bank accounts fueled the need to figure out how to do instantaneous payments between two people who didn't know each other. And so the first emergence of the emerging markets, because they had less options and they weren't as banked, developing a creative ecosystem that really triggered the world's imagination was in the mobile wallet space, right? Because everybody's heard of M-Pesa and Bcash in Bangladesh. These were incredibly underbanked populations, but they all had mobiles. And so that's the power of that channel, the power of the device that everybody has for connectivity. And why can't money move as easily as a text message? Because money is data and information. So I think Asia and the emerging markets have actually taught the established markets um, the power of creativity and innovation, showing us what the future is and what it could be. These developments are now going global. Even America is catching up. And it's moving beyond just how individuals manage their money and buy insurance or mortgages or whatever, but it's expanding into corporate financial services as well. One of the fintech leaders that I interviewed, Patrick Collinson, one of the founders of Stripe, a payments firm just valued at $95 billion and now America's most valuable private company, uh, he described what he thinks Stripe is doing really well. Stripe is building infrastructure for the internet economy. Uh, we're figuring out how to expose banks' capabilities uh, to, uh, to, again, actors and to businesses and to individuals who didn't previously have ready access to them. The most basic thing is banks, of course, issue debit cards and credit cards, uh, and we're making it possible for those cards that they issue to be accepted by online businesses. Uh, but the, the thing we've been working on over the last couple of years that, that I'm pretty excited by is trying to figure out how to expose some of the core capabilities at the heart of their business to, uh, to, uh, in, 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 in fundamentally new ways that are better adapted to the internet. And so we announced a product last year called Stripe Treasury, uh, and we did that in partnership with, uh, with a number of banks, including uh, Citi and Barclays. Um, and we're enabling them to offer easy bank account setup through various other platforms. Uh, so uh, whether it's in lending or whether it's in new ways to hold balances or whether it's in you know, some of the more basic payments mechanics, there's a lot of different ways in which you can take these capabilities that have been refined by banks over the last couple of decades and make them newly accessible. And we'll hear more from Patrick Collison in next week's episode of Money Talks. But from what we've heard, waves of technological disruption come for all industries sooner or later, mostly to the benefit of consumers. Why does the disruption of banking in this way matter more than for other industries, Alice? The idea that banking is going to be disrupted by tech might sound familiar to those who have been watching, you know, developments in taxi businesses uh, that have been displaced by ride hailing services or newspapers, booksellers, uh, etc. But money and banking are not like those other industries because 
Banking is essentially the the literal interface between the state, which underpins the value of all money. You know, all money is backed by the full faith and credit of whichever government issues it. They're the interface between sort of that underpinning of all money and the wider economy. And so fundamentally, changes to this structure will fundamentally change the, the nature of the relationship between the state and the economy as well. And one of the important changes uh, that is happening is that, you know, banks have historically played this very important role in in funneling sort of credit to the economy because they have this sort of pool of deposits with which to draw upon and fund their loans. But the tech model of, you know, lending provision to individuals starts with the data that they collect. And they've used this information to make very quick enormous inroads into the provision of credit. So for example, in China, fintech firms have lent around 2% of total credit in just five years. One of the people that sort of thinks very deeply about what it means that these tech platforms are going to have all of this data about us that they can use in this way is Jean-Pierre Landau. He's the former deputy governor of the Bank de France. The banks has your information. They keep it secret, but they use it to lend. Hmm? And this is going to explode because this, the, the information will be with the payment system most likely. And, and so the, the credit rating function, all the function which, uh, which, um, which allows you to land uh, rather safely, that will be totally unbundled with the rest of the credit activity. And so at the end of the day, the bank may just be there as a balance sheet. Actually, the bank is becoming an accessory to the payment. So we are moving from a world the payment is an accessory to lending, and now asset management and lending are an accessory to payment. That is the big change. If I were a banker, I would look at those kids who are nine, ten years old right now, eight, nine years old. They spend all their life on their mobile. <laughs> so the, if they're offered the possibility of a full-fledged financial life on the mobile, they will take it. Will they still bother to open the bank account? That would, that would really keep me awake at night as a banker. But Alice, why does this change add up to a threat to the traditional banking model? So the way to think about these developments is that the advantage that the tech firms have is that they know who to lend to, even if they don't have the balance sheet to back it up necessarily. You know, they have all this information that tells them who they can lend money to, for example. Banks' strength is that they have this huge deposit base. So they have all of this sort of capital, all of this this funding that they can allocate to loans, but they don't necessarily know who the best borrowers are. And the real problem that this poses for banks is that banks aren't the only people that can provide capital. So over the past, you know, 50 years, capital markets have developed, you know, pools of investor capital that hold loans and equities and all kinds of financial services products. You know, they have grown and grown as a share of the total financial assets held worldwide. So even though banks' holdings of financial assets are at all times high, the share that they hold relative to this pool of investors has been shrinking. So you have the tech firms that know better than the banks potentially who to lend to and how to provide financial services to people. And then you have the capital markets who can now be the people that sort of provide that funding. And that dynamic, you know, it's almost like a pincer effect. The banks are being eaten into from both sides. And, you know, it's painful in the short term and potentially existential in the long term. 
And the biggest bankers in the world, they realize this threat. They are worried about it. But you know, they say that they're not going to go down without a fight. I talked to a lot of the big sort of traditional banking incumbents like Christian Scheer at Deutsche Bank and a sort of long distance crackly phone call with Jamie Dimon, the head of JP Morgan Chase. And he sees this development as stiff competition for the banks. I think they're very big competition, very smart, a lot of money, you know, different profitability requirements, different legal requirements. They have the benefits of not having legacy systems. That is the benefit. Remember, the benefit of a legacy system is you also, the reason you have a legacy system is actually you're dumb. There's no magic to having a modernized cloud system. It just takes, takes a lot of time and money to convert one to the other. But the reason you have a big legacy system that's hard to convert is you've got 50 million accounts on it, and you're quite profitable. If you do an assessment of the battlefield, you've got economies of scale, you've got brand. There are strengths and weaknesses. It's just not that, it's just not that simple, but I do think in this case, battle fully engaged totally absolutely mm-hmm. and and the, the regulator is going to play a huge part in how it ends up so one vision is as jamie diamond put it battle fully engaged and it's up to the regulators who gets the advantage what do fintechs say about this it really depends who you talk to. Some fintechs say that their goal is to essentially compete away the banks entirely and that they have this sort of radical new vision for how payments and financial services will operate. For example, Grab in Singapore uh, has applied for a banking license, uh, suggesting that it's really going to go toe to toe with the existing banks. But a lot of other fintech firms partner with banks and work with them to better provide the services that banks do to people more widely. Here's Patrick Collison of Stripe again. Everyone always wants to make these things, you know, a horse race. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's so important to keep in mind the structurally positive sum nature of you know, uh, uh, so many of these problems. Um, the, the banking sector overall has, uh, as your report pointed out, grown tremendously over the past 20 years. And my view is that it will continue to do so for the next couple of decades, and that the internet should be a huge tailwind because ultimately a lot more financial services are going to be taking place. There are going to be more businesses, they're going to have more customers, and the world is going to be more globally integrated than ever before. And he's not alone in thinking that way. If the banks are going to work together with fintechs, then regulators are going to have to get better at managing what is called open banking. Here is Kahina van Dyke of Standard Chartered again to explain what that is. I think open banking is here, and I think it's here um, to stay. We are moving out of a world that is um, command and control and winner takes all. What open banking allows us to do is to create safe ecosystems that allow connectivity to the pieces of information that you need if you are a client or you're an individual saying, I want all of these pieces of information, and I, but I want them curated in this way because it's real-time connectivity. It's safe transmission of data and information. It's always about who's going to get there quickest, but most importantly, if you get there fast, but you don't have the right solution, you're not going to win. And the reality is that the, 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 when I was at Facebook, I was doing partnerships all the time with the banks. Right? I was doing partnerships. I was talking to the banks. I was talking to the regulators. I was talking to the payment providers like Stripe. So I think that the ecosystem, although many times people like to think it's a, it's a fintech versus the bank, in many cases, the fintechs don't have banking licenses. They just have great client experience, right? But they don't actually run and operate the core banking system, which is actually kind of hard and not that sexy to do, right? And so what I think, my personal opinion, is that the, the, the winners 
are going to be those who are wise enough and humble enough to know what they do really well and, and, and partner with people who fill in their gaps. The business model of the past is not the business model of the future. And I would argue for the fintechs and for the banks. And so how creative can we get in reinventing ourselves? Now, that sounds like a much more encouraging vision. Isn't that fundamentally good for consumers? The developments that we're talking about are great for consumers in lots and lots of ways. You know, the rise of tech firms who are competing down some of the frictions that are currently sort of embedded in financial services. Uh, The rise of capital markets is also mostly good news. You know, investors holding on to risky assets rather than just banks potentially will make the sort of whole system safer in the future. There might be fewer of those banking crises that we've talked about. Banks have never had full coverage of all the people that might need them, you know, some 7 million households in America are unbanked. Uh, if these tech firms make reaching those people easier, then that will be sort of a huge win. All of these things are great developments that really we should be cheering. But there are also a huge number of enormous risks. So the platforms that we've been talking about, um, they benefit from network economies of scale, you know, the same things that have meant that Amazon is the sole sort of dominant provider of e-commerce and the social media companies, you know, that the more people join those those ecosystems, the more valuable they become. And it really potentially sort of creates this world of a winner-take-all tech platform that could know everything about your financial payments history and could potentially sort of silo you or use that data in ways that you're uncomfortable with. And there might not be competitors who can really offer the same thing. Banks are very concentrated, but tech is winner takes all. And, you know, for most of the history of financial service, the risks that you've worried about have been financial stability. But it really looks as though the world that we're heading to, the big, important risks will be in data and privacy. And this debate over monopolies of power and access to data only intensifies when you consider the impact that digital currencies might have, whether these are private ones like Libra, um, now reimagined as DM, the token that Facebook is exploring issuing, or increasingly government-issued central bank digital currencies. And we'll be getting into that in just a moment as we ask what happens when not just the processes for accessing and moving money, but money itself goes digital. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The world's first fully-fledged, fully-launched public digital currency, being used day-to-day by ordinary people, was not issued by China or by America, but by a country with a population of under half a million. Sand dollar is the new digital Bahamian dollar created by the Central Bank of the Bahamas. It's just like physical cash, but safer and more convenient. John Roll, the governor of the Central Bank of the Bahamas, explained why his tiny country raced to put this ambitious plan into action. We started along a process to modernize our payment system. 
and we address a lot of issues along the way, such as the big one, which is financial inclusion. The Bahamas is at the front of a wave of interest from governments around the world. In China, more than half a million people have received the central bank's digital currency in trial since last year. On April 19th, Britain launched a task force to consider the idea. And America's Federal Reserve is looking into it. Today, more than 50 monetary authorities representing the bulk of global GDP are exploring digital currencies. Alice, what set off this flurry of activity? The shift towards digital payments and digital money fundamentally is a reckoning that central banks are trying to deal with. The existing system that we use, which is that central banks print the physical banknotes that we use to pay for things, but that they also run monetary policy through the pipes of the banking system. That setup is potentially not going to be as effective in a world in which we're all using digital payments run by tech platforms. And these developments are potentially destabilizing the world in which we've lived in away from this situation in which central banks mostly operate through physical banknotes and through the banks. The person who explains this best is probably Jean-Pierre Landau, the former deputy governor of the Bank de France. He spoke with Marcus Brennemeyer in an online seminar for Princeton University in March. I cannot think in peacetime and out of a crisis of a recent period where so much changed in the way people looked at money. And of course, the maybe the, the trigger for that was the wake-up call that Libra represented. So I deliberately called it by its old name, Libra, because it was it was a real shock, as it was for most of the international monetary community. He describes this shock as a triple whammy. First, you had a big size network with pre-existing network externalities, potentially more than 1 billion people adopting a new currency uh, which has been introduced, instantly credible as a medium of exchange. Second, it was cross-border because the Facebook network is cross-border. And third, it introduced a new unit of account based on a basket of currencies, which was a direct infringement of monetary sovereignty. So that is the line that Facebook uh, with Libra uh, crossed that challenged directly monetary sovereignty by creating a new unit of account. Even if that project never sees the day, I think it has changed the world dramatically. Alice, what does Mr Landau mean by monetary sovereignty and why is that so important? This is something you hear again and again from central bankers. It's essentially the ability to control and influence the sort of supply of money in their nation. Uh, for example, here's Mu Changchun, the Chinese central bank's digital currency boss, speaking at a Bank for International Settlements conference last month. Back to 2014, at that time, the crypto assets, including Bitcoins and the Ethereum coins are very, were very popular at that time. Those crypto assets actually pose a threat to the uh, capital account management of China and also pose a threat to the monetary sovereignty and also the monetary policy implementation independence. So that's why that's the first reason why we developed this uh, retail CBDC in China. And so essentially, you can think of one of the reasons that central banks might want to issue digital currencies is because they fear that if they don't, either the supply of money in their nation will be you know, controlled by potentially private entities or even could be displaced by the sort of slick digital currency of one of their neighbours and their citizens might start using a different currency altogether. And these are sort of existential threats for central bankers. 
But CBDCs also offer all sorts of advantages, don't they? Just think of all the holdups to pandemic assistance money in America, for example. Imagine if in a crisis the government could have funneled these sorts of welfare payments straight to the people who need them the most. Yes, digital money would be a much better way to do things like provide stimulus checks, you know, people will get the money instantly. Other nations have also experimented with the idea of programming money. So if you wanted stimulus to be really effective, you could have it expire if you didn't use it. And that would sort of force people to spend it quickly. And this idea of programming money is extremely exciting, but it also comes with all sorts of sort of futuristic risks. Jean-Pierre Landau, again, he flagged some of the major ones that could come from giving governments that level of control. A lot of people might be attracted by some feature of programmable money of this kind because it may make actually a lot of things uh, much much more easier and much more efficient. On the other hand, uh, what if the, that person would send you money say you won't be able to buy alcohol with it, or you won't be able to travel with it, or whatever? And uh, and so you can imagine that you can program according to very very different objectives, very very different imperatives. That's a very different kind of money that we have. I, I think monetary authority should be very, very worried. Uh, we have lived in a system when we had a uniform currency for many decades. We tend to take it for granted, but technology, I think, we challenge that enormously. And then I suppose we move from concerns about a scenario where customers' data is concentrated with private payment platforms or cryptocurrencies to a scenario where you're worried about data being concentrated directly with the government. Yes, so you might be worried that a private company could have sort of total information about your financial life, but you would be extremely concerned if the government had the same potential insight and control. This might not necessarily be something that citizens in democratic countries need to stay awake at night too much about. There's sort of reasonable separation of powers, for example, between the IRS, which has everyone's tax information and law enforcement authorities, you know, people couldn't get access to Donald Trump's tax returns, even though they they wanted them without sort of due process. But it definitely is a sort of strange and unusual world to consider that the government sort of potentially could have that much information. This is one of the reasons that why when central bankers talk about this, they speak so, so cautiously. For example, here is Christine Lagarde, the head of the European Central Bank, in conversation with our editor-in-chief, Sani Minton-Beddows, earlier this year. We should have a digital currency which will not exclude banknotes. Uh, we should have a digital currency that is respectful of privacy, uh, which is not selling data, which is not exploiting the data of people that are using it a digital currency that also uses the canal of banks. And what's what's the timing of this? Are we talking, you know, in the next year or two, or is this a kind of, you know, beyond your presidency kind of thing? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, we, we look at how long it took China to get there. They started six years ago. I hope less than the time it took them because hopefully the learning curve will be shorter. It's hard to say, but I would say in the next four years, we should be there. I just hope that uh, your audience appreciates that it's not to substitute existing payment means. It's a mean of payment, not a means of speculation and cannot expose the, uh, the safety and the stability of the banking system either. And on that last point that Ms Lagarde made there, can you explain for listeners how this expanding role for central banks could undermine the role of commercial banks? Central bank digital currencies could be many things that some of the capabilities of the banking system right now are not. So payments in them could be instant, they could be free, and they're also extremely safe. You know, 
people think of their money as being safe in banks, partly because it's protected by things like deposit insurance, but there's no safer place to have your money than with the central bank, which is the institution that underpins its value. So, you know, if you think these central bank digital currencies would be so appealing, it's possible that everyone would pull all of their money out of the banking system and put it in these CBDCs instead. And that shift would be just absolutely enormous in the sort of magnitude of its implication. Uh, The system of banking that we have now is the sort of entire underpinning of all of the ways in which we create loans and provide sort of funding to the economy without having any state interference in credit allocation. And if there was a sort of rush of money into the central bank, the central bank then has to find a way to reallocate that back into the economy without influencing the provision of credit. And that is a very, very difficult problem and even greater if you think that the movement of money into these instruments could be really, really significant. And that's just, you know, one of the first risks. The other one is the privacy problems that we've talked about. And also the idea that if you concentrate activity potentially in a central bank digital platform, it becomes such a critical part of the infrastructure of an economy that it could be a very juicy target for malicious actors. This week, we saw the paralyzing of the colonial oil pipeline and how critical that is. But but just imagine how much worse it would be if it were the system that underpinned every financial transaction in America. Silas, if you bring this all together, on one side, you've got potentially complete digitization of payments and money management through an increasingly complex combination of big fintechs and traditional banks. And on the other side, you've got digitization of money itself, both public and private, with lots of risks, but also lots of opportunities, especially for people who've been financially excluded. So given all this, let's come back to our initial question. Does the world still need banks? I think it's sort of inevitable that we'll move to a world in which banks play a smaller role. Central banks are making progress towards issuing these this digital money, which probably will suck some deposits from the banking system. The tech firms are very fierce competition in the direct provision of financial services and carrying out financial transactions. Uh, capital markets are growing in share of credit that they provide. It feels as though we're, we're already on that path. The question of whether we we need banks at all and whether they could go away entirely, the system that we've developed to underpin the value of money through central banks, but have private banks doing all of the credit allocation, that's so critically important that I think you don't want to end up in a world where that system is undermined and goes away entirely. There are so many risks associated with that, that it even though people might not have a lot of love for banks, you actually don't want them to shrink away to nothing. But that doesn't mean that that central banks can resist sort of issuing CBDCs to protect the existing banking system. If they do it sensibly, you know, it could be this huge force for good. And the risks of not pursuing a digital form of money also seem extremely significant. You know, the hope is that we can look back at this period where so much is changing in the way that we do payments and financial transactions and and the way that finance is provided as a service to all of us and we'll emerge out of this sort of flurry of activity in a much better state. Alice Forward, thank you very much. Thank you, Rachna. 
And thank you so much for listening to Money Talks. We've really only scratched the surface here of this vast and hugely important topic. So I highly recommend you read Alice's full special report to find out how banks and tech platforms can best work together and how governments should think about designing CBDCs to maximise their benefits and minimise the risks. Listeners can get a special offer on a subscription at economist.com slash podcast offer, and that link is in the notes for this episode. While you're with us, please do leave us a rating or review wherever you listen. It really helps us keep doing what we do and do it better. The producer was Amika Shortino-Nolan, with additional production help from Abisoye Oshondero and Nico Ravast. The editor was Sandra Schmoeli. I'm Rachna Schanberg, and in London, this is The Economist. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.